It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, and coming up on today's show, how a conservation rethink is needed to preserve biodiversity. A lot of the big, famous national parks are actually in places which are quite barren. They may be spectacular geologically, but they're not necessarily very biodiverse. What can be done to increase the numbers of women in science, technology, and engineering, and within the tech industry at large? Would you believe that 99% of women said, yes, absolutely, my company has a diversity program, yet only 30% say they've benefited from it? And I speak to Hossein Dirksham, an Iranian-Canadian writer formerly imprisoned in Tehran for his writing, about the value of news in the digital age. The relation that you have with the screen on your phone, for example, is very similar to television. It's centralized, it's passive, and funnily enough, it also has a prime time. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio. But first, conservation. With extinction rates estimated to be between 100 and 1,000 times their pre-human level and man-made climate change reshaping the environment, conservation has never been more important. But are current practices helping to preserve biodiversity? To discuss this, I'm joined by Jan Petrowski, the Economist Environment Correspondent. Hello, Jan. Hi, Ken. Jan, people have been talking about conservation for decades. What's new about it today? Well, one thing that is new is that in the old days, especially when climate change wasn't such big a deal, you could at least hope that if you took a parcel of land, fenced it off and kept people out, the impact of humans on whatever is within that parcel of land would be, um, could be minimized. Now that human impacts on the environment transcend fences, people are really starting to think whether or not this, this whole fortress idea uh, still stacks up. And many are concluding that it doesn't. And so what are they doing about it? Well, one of the things is that they're choosing very carefully what places to preserve. And so, in fact, you can look at places which are, which are almost sort of consigned to be changed out of all recognition by climate change. This is especially true of, of marine sanctuaries. So corals are some of the carriers of biodiversity which are most threatened by um, acidifying oceans and, and warmer water. In fact, if temperatures rise by another half a degree from today's levels globally, you can expect 70 to 90 percent of corals to die. If they rise by another degree, you can expect more than 99 percent of today's corals to die. So a group of scientists led by a researcher from the University of Queensland have actually tried to use uh, some financial mathematics to construct a portfolio of coral reefs that minimizes the risk that the reefs in the portfolio will actually go underwater, if you will. So just as asset managers try to diversify risk across their bond and stock portfolio. So investors normally go with money. How does it work with the environment? How do environmentalists and conservationists interact with this information? 
Well, one thing they look at is biodiversity, so the variety of different species that you have in different places. Some parts of the world, be they ocean or terrestrial, carry more biodiversity than others. And in fact, this is one of the problems that some of the conservation organizations are, are running into and, and highlighting. In other words, a lot of the places which we think of as wilderness and a lot of the big famous national parks are actually in places which are quite barren. They may be spectacular geologically, but they're not necessarily very biodiverse. Because, you know, they're up high up in the mountains, in places which are dry. So there's obviously some life there. But as a variety of life goes, it's not that spectacular. So the idea is to focus, of many of these people, is the idea is to focus on places which are biodiversity hotspots, which carry, in a small area, a very large variety of life. So focusing on that will mean that you preserve perhaps not a large area, but a large variety. In this particular instance, that is the sort of currency of the conservation movement. Not money in this case, but biodiversity. And is this approach working? Are we getting better at conservation? Well, conservation is getting harder because of climate change. It is getting harder because humans are settling more and more. Cities are exerting a greater ever pressure. More roads are being built through places which were pristine until recently. So both through direct of human activity and indirect impacts through the changing climate are increasing, which makes preserving what came before humans trickier. Is there any silver bullet approach that if we only did would give us the biggest bang for our buck, but we're not doing it? Absolutely not. So what are the small little brass bullets that would be helpful? One thing is just to focus, to actually to find out what works. So one very important thing is to understand a lot of conservation, as William Sutherland of Cambridge University has pointed out to me, a lot of conservation practice relies on a gut feeling. So conservationists have a general sense that what they are doing works, but a lot of that is not really grounded in very evidence. Uh, so what he's doing at Cambridge is, is a project called Conservation Evidence, which was inspired by the idea of evidence-based medicine. He and his team have compiled a list of interventions for specific species based on a very thorough examination of peer-reviewed literature on conservation uh, measures to see what actually does appear to work for what species or what type of species or is it like birds versus amphibians or, you know, magpies versus eagles. And in fact, what doesn't work? And, and in order to find out what doesn't work, because peer-reviewed literature tends to skew towards things that do work, that's publication bias, um, especially in English language literature, which is more prestigious for many academics. They're actually looking at foreign language academic journals where some of the negative results or results which are inconclusive are more likely to be published. They're expending a tremendous effort just to try and see what actually works. And a lot of conservation organizations like the Nature Conservancy or Conservation International, WWF, they are also examining where their money is going, their own projects, and sort of trying to see in a more quantitative light exactly what works and what doesn't. The data for the time being are still pretty scarce, so hard and fast relationships are difficult to pin down, but it is certainly something that these organizations are doing. So in other words, you could say that this whole idea of effective altruism, which is gaining ground, especially among donors, especially quantitatively minded donors, in other words, getting most bang for your philanthropic buck has also infected conservation. Jan, that's great. Thank you very much. Thanks again. Next up, women in tech. 
The Boston Consulting Group recently published an important report examining the paucity of women in STEM, science, technology, and engineering. BCG identified the challenges that hold women back and, importantly, identified what can be done to improve the situation. To discuss how companies can best recruit, retain, and advance women, I'm joined by Frances Brooke-Taplett, the Senior Director of Global People at BCG. Hello, Frances. Hello, Ken. So first, please describe what was the most important findings from the report. You know, it's really interesting. When you look at the data in America, women are 36% of STEM graduates. And that number falls to 9% by the time women are arriving in leadership and its CEOs. So to me, the most interesting question was what's happening around retention and what's happening around advancement where women are dropping out? And how can we change that in organizations and in companies? Well, let's look at that. Let's look at the whole pipeline. But in the question of retention and advancement, what's going wrong and how can we fix it? Well, I think oftentimes it's tied to the other part, which is recruiting, which I think you were alluding to. And we often recruit a bunch of women in, and then we have a leaky bucket, and we lose them. And then we build this terrible narrative that that STEM isn't for women. And so I think to change that, we need to change what the experience is for women. And that's around both how they're supported in terms of the role models around them, and also more importantly around sponsorship. Is there someone who's really standing there and looking out for them, who's banging the table in a meeting and saying, we need to consider her for this role? And then it's around the experience. And there we get into flexible work models and taking bias out and making sure that women feel included and that the culture is inclusive as well. Now, in a world of AI, many people argue that jobs will be challenged. But at the same time, people feel that caring roles or at least jobs that involve more emotional intelligence and collaboration and communications are going to be the jobs of the future. And those are areas where women tend to perform better than men. So maybe the future of employment is the angry white male being on the dole and women being in leadership positions. It's clear that leadership requires a higher EQ. And you're right, women traditionally have spiked on that piece. And and the more we create AI and machine learning to drive a lot of the work that we are doing, the more important that human aspect is to ensure that the AIs are not learning bad things and that the learning is in the right direction and also to support the workforces that we have. So I think we need to broaden and think more carefully about the kind of leaders we need, but also that they understand the digital pieces. And that comes back to the education piece and making sure that women are in digital fields because it's obviously a combination of the two. What are some examples of things that have worked? Great. So, you know, Etsy is a really interesting company. They have a very female workforce. They create, you know, it's sort of women who make things at home and sell them on the internet. And one of the things they realized is that they didn't have enough women in the digital field. So they created a 12-week program with free courses on open source software and coding. And they were able to hire more than a third of these women into the digital side of the house, which really changed the skew of their workforce and also helps them better meet the needs of their customer because they have women in all parts of the business. Francis, I think a lot of our listeners will completely understand what you're saying. They live it every day in the companies that they work for. I know I do. What can I do? So we asked the same question and we actually went out and we asked over 10,000 individuals you know, does your company have a diversity program? And if so, have you benefited from it? Would you believe that 99% of women said, yes, absolutely, my company has a diversity program, yet only 30% say they've benefited from it. In any other field, if we had a you know, 60-point gap, 
we wouldn't invest in that program. We'd make changes. So I think a lot of companies are making these mistakes. So why aren't they benefiting from it? Well, I think companies are investing in the wrong areas. They don't have the data to understand where the issues lie. At the beginning, we talked about retention and advancement, but often white men over 45 think that recruiting is the issue. So they're often in leadership roles and the decision makers. And so we see a disproportionate amount of investment in recruiting and not enough in the actual retention and advancement pieces that we spoke to earlier. And I think it's also about the data and ensuring that you really understand the numbers. So looking at whether men and women are paid the same amount for the same role. Are they in role for the same amount of time? Are we promoting women just as quickly? And oftentimes that data gets muddied by maternity leaves because there are off-ramps and on-ramps, and that can be challenging to, to sort of understand. And when we look at our top bucket performers, are they just as likely to be promoted? And when they're not, that's when companies can dig in because they understand very precisely where the issue is and address it. And that's usually where we see the positive change trajectory happen. Francis, thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. I'm joined in the studio by the Iranian-Canadian writer Hossein Durksham. Hossein was a pioneer of blogging and podcasting in Iran, but was imprisoned in Tehran for six years for his critical writing. He was eventually pardoned by the Supreme Leader of Iran and freed from prison in 2014. Since then, he's been writing from his desk at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where he's a fellow. Hossein, welcome to Babbage. The web has changed a lot in the last 25 years, and in fact, you've paid a heavy price for some of those changes in terms of how governments have got so interested in it. So my first question to you is, has the web revolution failed? So it has and it has not. In a sense, this is the first time in history that everybody, almost everybody on the planet, can speak freely publicly because increasingly people have phones and all these platforms and all that. But then from another point of view, it has not because it hasn't led into a public conversation that was the promise of, of the web, you know, the, the idea of the public sphere and all that. And the reason is because there is, as some people suggest, it's too much speech. And I would argue that it's not about the amount of speech, it's more about the nature of speech. Because the web used to be a space that was text-based and also reason-based. And I saw that as a part of the Enlightenment project. And now I'm arguing that we're entering the post-Enlightenment because that space is turning into a visual and a very emotional space, um, which resembles television in many aspects. You know, not just there are more videos and pictures, but also because the mode of communications, the, the relations that you have with the screen on your phone, for example, is very similar to television. It's centralized, it's, it's passive, it's linear, and it's never-ending. And, funnily enough, it also has a prime time. What is the implication of that? If the web is becoming more like television and if there's more information than ever before, what does that mean for censorship? So for increasing for authoritarian system, I think it's much easier to control you know, dangerous speech when you have a proliferation of speech and when you have more entertainment than serious discussions. This is what's happening. So in Iran, for example, where I come from, I think the government cares much more about speech online than a few years ago because 
10 years ago, when I was blogging, for example, 15, almost 15 years ago, my blog was had 20,000 readers every day. But the authorities took it so seriously that I was even questioned in the interrogation about why I changed my tagline a few times. They, were, they had their own interpretations of what those words meant. And, you know, they were really seeing every word very carefully and they, were, they had all these charged interpretations of it and it's not the case now anymore you know there's millions of tweets every day they don't care much so in a way to sum it up i think we have entered the hoxleyan world of the brave new world compared to the the orwellian world of pure hard control now you've made a point that technology is, if you will, the bedrock of news, the catalyst to news because of the telegraph enabling the middle and upper classes to get information from around the world instantaneously. Why wouldn't we be seeing a golden age of news because we now have democratized it, that everyone can actually participate in news, both as a consumer and a producer, even if we don't have an economic model for it? So I think there is a cultural explanation for this. So the crisis is not about ethics or quality or trust. It's about news losing its cultural relevance or its importance as a commodity. Because, as I said, you have this bifurcation of very short-form news, which is basically tweets, and they're not produced by news outlets, and nobody wants to pay for them. And then you have long-form things that take so much money and time to produce, and people are willing to pay for the long-form things, and this is what, uh, this is the direction of things. So you have three directions, in a way, for the future of news. One is to approach cinema, and you have Netflix documentaries, you have the rise of documentary, video documentaries, long form. Then it's literature, non-fiction literature, and the best examples recently has been Bob Woodward's book, for example. And the third direction is long form audio, which is podcasts. And they're all growing rapidly. And anything that existed in between the short form and the long form, which were mainly the news stories in 800, 700 words, is disappearing because people are not willing to pay for it anymore. Hussein, to hear you talk about the future of news and the fact that you don't see a bright future for it, yet you've paid a heavy price for, as a writer for what you've said online, do you feel that you've spent six years in jail in vain? Um... Yeah, it's hard to answer. Yeah, from from a point of view, yes. But then I think it's also helped me to see things in a way that most people maybe cannot afford seeing it because I've been absent from these changes for a long time. And that has given me a kind of distant look at things and it maybe a deeper look at these changes. And that's why I quickly saw that this new internet is not the web that I was used to. This is television. Uh, you know, you scroll and it's like changing channels and, you know, there are commercials in between and it's exactly like television. It doesn't look television to some to, me, to most people, but it's the nature of it is very much like television. And these things, I wouldn't be able to spot these things if I had not been away for some time. I was in solitary for eight months and I didn't have anything to read and do, so... I think I I sort of gained 
some powers in because I concentrated so much. It was long, it was like a long uh, meditation. Some people say, and it's I think it's changed the way my brain works to some degree. Hussein, it wasn't in vain, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. That was fun. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. And don't forget. If you want to read our stories, subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. It matters. It means a lot. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.